I was young, um, my family lived near a water park. It's called AJ's Water Park over on 28th Street. Maybe some of you went there. I was in elementary school, and I was pretty small for my age, even for an elementary schooler, but I was pretty adventurous, and I was a good swimmer. So one day my family went, and I was in the wave pool, um, and somehow I had kind of done my own thing, and I was in a place where I thought I was safe in the wave pool, right? How many of you have been there in a wave pool, and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm good, I'm good? I was not good. Um, little Laura, adventurous though she was, and good swimmer though she was, quickly lost her footing. I was, as the waves started coming stronger, because you know they do that eventually, they start coming more and more, they started sucking me in and pulling me down, and all of a sudden I, I couldn't stand, let alone keep my head above the water. And I started going under very quickly, and, and, and it would take longer and longer for me to get back up, to get a breath, and all of a sudden it hit me, I think this is what drowning is. And at one point, by God's grace, I was able to get above the water, and I looked, and there was a lifeguard there. And I was like, yes, this is what they're here for. Suddenly I cared about the no lifeguard on duty sign, but the lifeguard was there. But they didn't see me. I was right under their stand. And they had no idea that I was actively drowning. And I began going under and running out of hope. And I think that's where David finds himself today in our psalm. He has been hit, as he puts it, by wave after wave. He's not just struggling, doggy paddling on the surface. He is sinking down into the depths. And he's looking up and saying, I know there's a lifeguard on duty. I know God sees me, but where are you, God? Where is my promised salvation? Because I am going under. I am overwhelmed. And I don't see a rescuer anywhere in sight. And maybe this morning, some of you are in that place too. Maybe you're feeling a little bit overwhelmed by the waves of life coming at you, by the attacks in the world around you, by the pain that you're experiencing in your life. It feels like David did. It's not just one thing, but for him, a myriad of situations coming together, wave after wave, and every time you pull yourself above the surface of your pain and you feel like you start to get your head back and you start to get your breath back, another wave knocks you back down. Maybe you're in that place that David was, going, God, where are you? Because I'm going down to the depths, and I don't see a rescuer anywhere in sight. But my prayer is for us today, friends, as we find ourselves maybe in that place of David. We'll leave this place today not going, God, where are you? Not going, we don't have a God who can save or rescue or my God has abandoned me, but instead we will see who God really is through the truth of his word, through the trust that David in the midst of his despair Put in the Lord, and we will leave encouraged and ready to keep swimming, knowing our rescuer is on his way. So we have been, if you are just joining us, in a series of laments for the last two weeks, and this week and next week, asking ourselves, what does it mean to lament in this broken world, but keep our trust in a faithful God? A lament, as we have said, is a prayer of pain. It's not something that we push down. How many people in this congregation pretend they don't have feelings? 
and push them away, right? How many of your spouses pretend they don't have, we'll deal with this later. Your family history was stuff it down and then we'll die and it'll be fine. That's not what scripture calls us to do. We have a real authentic God who wants us to be real and authentic with him, right? So this series is about saying, God, I am in pain. Something in this world is not right. Jesus did this in scripture. He wept, right? And the times that he wept, he was weeping because he looked around. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept at Lazarus's tomb and he said, something isn't right. And he lamented it. He calls us to do the same, to acknowledge. But that prayer of pain, that acknowledgement leads us to trust in God. And that's where so many Christians go astray. That prayer of pain leads them to anger and bitterness and resentment and disconnection from God. But our invitation today is to dive into the pain, to be real, and then to let that pain move us towards the comfort of our God. And David does that well for us today. And he begins by step one of lament, which is turning to God. Or as I would put it in David's terms, crying out to God. We heard that this morning as Bree read it so beautifully for us. David is crying out to God, Save me, God, because the waters have come up to my neck. I am sinking down into the depths. And it's easy for us to think this is David going, okay, God, I've tried everything else, right? So I guess I'll try praying. No, this actually seems like a last-ditch effort of a faithful man. Um, in verse 2, he says, I sink into the miry depths where there is no foothold. He's gone down deep, right? But then he also says, my throat is parched from calling endlessly. Your throat doesn't get parched by just saying, hey, can you help me, God? He has called over and over and over and over again. This isn't just a one-time plea. This is, I have cried out for help so much. There's nothing left here, God. This is a man of faithfulness who knows where to turn. And that's to God. And yet he still finds himself waiting for that firm footing to propel himself upward out of the water, right? He still finds himself waiting for God's answer. But he keeps knocking, he keeps praying, and he keeps turning to God, crying out and asking him to help. And then the next point in our journey of lament is bringing our complaint to God, and David does that. Why is he sinking? We know it's not actual water, right? David's not in some kind of shipwreck situation. He's very metaphorical, and that's beautiful. What's pulling him down? What are the waves? Well, not sand, but that's a good guess. Oh, sin. No, uh, it's other people. Basically, some folks are out to get him. And not just anybody. The people that are supposed to be on David's team. The people that are of faith. The people that are in his inner circle to some degree. We don't know exactly the situation surrounding this psalm, and that's okay. But we know enough that David is saying, I am being accused, right? He says, I have to, in the psalm that Bree just read, he has to pay back what he did not steal. They are, they are mocking him. They are scorning him. They are scoffing at him. David says this. He says, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. David's complaint is these people are after me and I didn't do anything to them. Have you ever had someone in your life 
react so hostily and vitally to you after you did nothing to them? You literally just step go back and go, what's your problem, man? My siblings and I had that conversation a lot growing up. What's your problem? Right? I think that's a little bit of David's posture. What's your problem? I didn't do anything. In fact, not only do we know that David didn't do anything, but David is actually being persecuted because he has been following the Lord zealously, Scripture tells us. David's not just in trouble because he, he screwed up on something. No. David is struggling. People are mocking him. They are literally seeking to destroy him, it says, because of his passionate commitment to God. David says, God, you want to hear my complaint? I followed you. I didn't do anything. What these people are accusing me of, God, and yet this is the treatment that I get? I know I've felt that way before. I think some of us are guilty in the Christian faith of having the idea that, um, do you know the mathematical equation a squared plus b squared equals c squared? Yeah, okay, some of us, the rest of us, like Laura, didn't love math. Um, that one stuck with me. I think as Christians sometimes, and, and maybe this is a bit of what David is experiencing and feeling, we go, okay, God, I put my faith in you, right? Part of equation one. I'm doing my best to follow you, right? A squared plus B squared equals prosperity, happiness, everything is great, this is how it's going to be forever, right? And then we find ourselves in situations like David's in going, the math doesn't add up. I knew they were lying to me at school. The math does not add up. I put my faith in you, I did my best, and here I am flat on my face. Here I am going under, practically drowning, right? That's where David is. God, this just doesn't add up. And it's because I'm following you. That's his complaint to God. Now, I think it's important to note something. In this passage, David is not saying he is a totally guiltless person, right? We know. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He says in verse 5, you know my folly, God. My guilt is not hidden from you. David knows. Something, something's gone on between him and God. He's messed up somehow, and David's acknowledging that before God. And, and later on, it, we see language in the psalm that makes us think that God is disciplining David for this, right? God disciplines those he loves. He's walking David through it. But the context we get in this psalm from David is not saying, hey, I'm being punished for my wrongdoing. It's David saying, yeah, I'm not a perfect man, but this situation is outside of that, and I am being persecuted because I am a faithful follower of you, God. That's David's complaint before the Lord. So he turns to God, he complains, he wrestles, and he moves past his initial complaint to go on to our next step, which is to ask God boldly. God, I'm turning to you. God, this situation sucks. It's broken. I don't know why I am being treated so unjustly, so poorly in your name, God. So I'm going to ask you to change the scene. I'm going to ask you to change the situation. I'm going to ask you, God, boldly for what I need. And what David needs is justice and salvation. He's sinking. 
He's sinking under the weight of the injustice, of the mistreatment. He's drowning and needs to be saved. And as David begins to ask boldly for God to do just that, to pick him up, place him on firm ground, and redeem his name, David does so because he knows who God is. Look with me at verse 6. In verse 6, David says this, May those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me, O Lord, the Lord Almighty. This, this chunk is actually so cool because in Hebrew, that simple phrase, O Lord, the Lord Almighty, actually addresses three distinct Hebrew names for God all at once. The first is the Lord of the universe, the Lord of all of creation, the Lord who made it, sustains it, and holds it in his power. The second is the Lord of the covenant, the God who said, I will not forsake you. I will keep my steadfast love to you, and I will do whatever it takes to uphold this covenant with you. And finally, this name addresses God as the divine warrior, one who is in power, one who fights for his people, one who goes to battle for justice and salvation of those who love him. So when David begins to ask God boldly, David starts with God's very name. He says, I know what you're called. I know who you are, and what I'm asking you to do is perfectly in line with your nature. Isn't that cool? Just by the names we call out, when you call out to someone in your life that you love, you have a name for them, right? When I was called Laura Beth growing up, I knew I was in trouble, right? When my dad called me Lorby, it was because he was being affectionate. We have different names we call on the people that we love, and that's what David's doing. David's saying, I know who you are. You are the God who fights, who rescues, who holds it all in control and saves. So save me, God. Be who I know you are. Be who your people know you to be. And as David goes on to appeal for salvation, he appeals again to the character of God and to two specific characteristics of God. Look with me at verse 16. David says, Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. David's saying, answer me. His request for the answer is salvation and justice, right? And it's out of the goodness of your love, God, you are loving, and out of your mercy, right? That word, Bob talked about it the last couple weeks, that love, hesed, it's this steadfast, enduring, covenantal, unchanging, unshakable, constant love of our God. David, again, he says, we know who you are, we've seen it. That, that's who I'm praying to. That's who I'm asking boldly because you've proven it over and over again. More than the waves of misery he's facing, more than the waves of abuse he's taking, more than the struggle and the treatment that's pulling him down, God has been, or David has been hit by wave after wave after wave of God's love and goodness. And that's what he appeals to. Save me, God, because it's who you are, because of your love. And he says, save me, God, because you're merciful. That word mercy is so cool. It's uh, the word, uh, I want to get it right. We put that up there, Nicole? Rahamim. I wasn't going to remember that, sorry. 
So the Hebrew word rahamim, it means mercy or compassion. It's from the root word meaning womb. And essentially what this is saying here is God looks at us like a mother looks at her child she is carrying in the womb. How sweet is that? Kara, I'm looking at your baby right now and I'm thinking, Emerson, like you just had this love for Emerson and it goes on, it doesn't end after they leave the womb, right? So often we get pictures of God as a strong father and he is, but parents, do you see the love that God has, this compassion of a mother protecting the child in her womb? David says, I need you to save me because I know this is who you are at your very nature, God. He goes on to ask God to move and redeem and save because he is this way. Let's just, I want to, I don't want to skip over this. Let's, let's these verses sink into us. He says, in verse 16, if you want to follow along, Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me, Right? God, save me. God, answer me because of who you are. Don't hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I'm in trouble. Come near and rescue me because of my foes. David is saying, God, do you see? I need you to do this because do you see the predicament I am in? Look at me, God. This is what I need you to do. You want me to ask boldly, okay, first, just see me. Hannah has a tattoo called El Roy. It's the God who sees me, what scripture says. God, if that's who you are, and I've heard that, then do it. See me, David says. Save me, God, because I have no more power. You ever been in a drowning situation? You're exhausted. You know at the end of it, you're either going to die or you're going to be rescued by someone else's power because you have spent everything in you. David says, I am powerless. I, I lay here in the depths, powerless. You have to pull me up. Can you just hear the absolute heart-wrenching place that David is in? Tears falling down his place. He is imploring God. I'm asking boldly, save me. How many of us have been in that place before? where we have prayed that same prayer of David. Where we've said, God, I know about your hesed. I know about your love. I know about your mercy. But I don't see it right now. I'm tired, God. Do you not get it? What do I have to do to get through to you? I am going under. Or as David says, my eyes have failed. The light's gone out. I've cried so much. I've spent so long looking for you. I've sank down to the depths. I can't even see you anymore, God. And here I am waiting for you because the waters have risen and I've gone under. How many of you have prayed that prayer with David? Hosanna, save us, Lord. I know I have. And I can tell you it was not a good moment in my life. Brothers and sisters, the good news for us today, the good news for David today, is that even when it doesn't feel like it, we know God hears us. 
in that place. God hears those who are called by his very name. We've seen the answer to that prayer, haven't we? We've seen how God stepped in and dealt with the things that made us feel like we were sinking. How he didn't ignore us in our moments of weakness and our cries for mercy. He didn't close his ears. He didn't close his eyes. He turned his face towards us, right? That's a blessing. The Lord turned his face towards you and be gracious to you. That's what he did. He was the lifeguard on duty. He saw us. He was there ready to rescue. And the truth is, he didn't rescue us because we yelled loud enough, because we struggled long enough that we, he noticed we were dead on the bottom of the pool. We had already drowned. We had no voice to cry out when our rescuer pulled us out from death and brought us to life. Jesus answered this prayer for David. While we, he was still his enemy, Jesus answered this prayer for us. Jesus took on the waves. Jesus took on those things that were pulling us down, and he defeated them when we didn't even have power to call on his name for salvation. This prayer of David, this prayer of yours, has been answered by Jesus Christ and by what he did on the cross for David, for you and I, for all the people that are called by his name, and all those who find themselves in this place of needing rescue. I don't know if you know this, but Psalm 69 is the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's all over the place. It's sometimes thought to be a messianic psalm, meaning that the fulfillment to this psalm wasn't really David, but it was Jesus Christ himself. Listen to what the greater testimony of Scripture tells us about what Jesus did for us to answer this prayer for salvation. God, save me. I'm going under. Scripture says, in, in verse 9, David said, zeal for your house consumes me. He's saying, God, I'm so passionate about you, but that's why people are mocking me. Well, in John 2, after Jesus goes into the temple and they're using it as a place to change money and, and, and to make profit, he flips the tables, right? This is a favorite of some of ours, of Jesus. The disciples remember after that, that scripture said, zeal for your house will consume me. In verse 4, David says, there are those who hate me without reason. And in John 15, Jesus says, they have seen and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law, they hated me without reason. In verse 20, David says, I looked for comforters. I was in this place of sinking down. No one was around to comfort me. I found none. And when Jesus is taken to the cross, Mark tells us, everyone deserted him and fled. All of his followers, all of his people, all of his friends, he was deserted. Even the closest, like the closest next to David, had left him and turned their backs on him. In verse 10 through 12 and 19 through 20, David recounts that he is scorned, made sport of, mocked, disgraced, and shamed. And the account of Jesus going before Pilate and going to the cross says this. The soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him, they put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. In verse 21, David says, they give me vinegar for my thirst. I'm thirsty, and instead they give me poison. 
Well, we know in John 19, Jesus on the cross says, I'm thirsty. And what do they give him? A jar of wine vinegar. They poison Jesus too. And in verse 3, David says, my eyes fail looking for my God. I don't see him. I don't see my rescuer. And when Jesus is dying on the cross in Matthew, he says those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus did to answer this prayer? Jesus didn't just reach out a hand and pull us out of the water. He came down, left the perfection of heaven, and experienced it on our behalf. Experienced it in our place. Experienced not only the wrath of man, but the wrath of God in a way we never will. Hallelujah. Because of what he did for us. So when we go... God, where are you? God, do you hear? God, do you care? Brothers and sisters, unlike David, the time we are in history, all we have to do is turn and look at the cross and remind ourselves, he hears. He sees. He's there. And all those names of God I have heard are absolutely true. And this is what David reminds himself of at the end of our psalm. As he makes that turn. Though David didn't get to see Christ in the way that we did, he was sure the salvation of the Lord would come. And he pivots from crying out for rescue to the last part of our lament. To being at the point of trust in God. He doesn't get to see Christ, but David knew God in one way or another. Because of his character, because of what he'd seen him do, he knew that God would move. He didn't see it. His eyes, remember? This is a linchpin. My eyes fail looking for my God. David didn't see it. But he still moves on to a place of trust, knowing because of who he knows God to be, that he is going to see it someday, even if he doesn't in the moment. Look at verse 30 with me. Start verse 30. David goes on from saying, in the, in the very verse before, he says, I'm in pain and distress. Save me. May your salvation, O God, protect me. But then he does the hard turn. He says, but I will praise God's name in song, and I will glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hoofs. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. David says, I don't see it yet, but you know what we're going to do? We're going to praise God. Because I know who he's been. I know what he has promised. And I'm going to trust in that. David says, I'm going to give thanks. David says, the poor, who in scripture are considered in this instance the righteous, right? Instead of the wicked who are, who are battling David. He's saying, the righteous are going to see and they're going to be glad. And not only that, but I know the Lord hears the needy. He doesn't despise his captive people. David says, I know you hear God. I know you don't turn your back. And because of that, I'm going to praise you. This is the turn. And it's easy to miss you're not in line with what you know to be true about the character of God, despite whether your eyes see it in the moment or not. And then David goes on 
In verse 34 and 35, he says this, Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. Zion's salvation. David's not just saying, hey, God, you're going to rescue me and everything's going to be great. He, that's what he said in the previous chunk. In this chunk, David's going past, right now my circumstances suck, suck but God, I'm going to praise you because you're going to save me. Now he's moving on. He's saying, God's going to restore Zion. That's an eternal perspective. A, a, mess, a Zion restoration was messianic salvation. When Zion, God's holy city, was restored, David is saying, God, you're going to send your Messiah. Not only are you going to rescue me from this specific situation, but I'm going to stop and praise you because I know your full promise is coming. You're going to send the Messiah that's not only going to rescue me, but it's going to rescue all people. You are going to restore everything, every person that's gone under with me, every other person that's going, I don't see it. You're going to do it, God. You're going to save your people in an eternal way. And that's what the trust turn takes, an eternal perspective. In uh, the book, Deep Clouds, Deep Mercy, it's a great book if you need comfort in your time of lament. It says, surviving injustice or really any other kind of hardship in the world requires an otherworldly focus. Overwhelming injustice must meet overwhelming confidence and trust in God. Friends, in order to be able to make that trust turn with whatever kind of lament that we're going through, we have to do what David did. Not just trust him for our specific situation, but look past to the bigger picture, to God's eternal plan of salvation. We have to look into eternity. That's where we find our comfort, because if we're looking in this world, we know what Jesus said, didn't we? In this world, you will have do we know this? In this world, you will have trouble. Say it, trouble. Nobody likes it. Jesus said, we heard it already. They hated me. They're going to hate you too, Christian. But he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Our perspective is not just, yes, we trust right now you're going to help me through this situation, but it's bigger than that. God, my eyes are on the prize. My eyes are on eternity. And that's what David's focus was. And that's what Jesus' focus was. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Who thinks about the cross as joy for Jesus? Not me. But Jesus had an eternal perspective. Jesus knew what the cross was going to bring. Even if he didn't see it in the moment, his eyes were not on his own suffering. His eyes were on the eternal promises of his God. And he knew what his journey to the cross was going to bring. Friends, that is the only way we can trust God in the middle of our lament and our suffering is to remember who he is and have an eternal perspective of what he's doing. And that's what leads David to do what he did, to end the psalm by praising God. In the worst moment of your life, in that room of crisis with your friends and family mourning around you, have you ever stopped to praise God? When you were in the depths and you were going under and, and struggling for your last breath, your hand reaching out, 
Have you ever stopped and said, it's going to be okay? Instead, I'm going to praise God. That is not a natural place for us to praise God. But that's exactly what David does in this psalm. And he calls in the psalm on the rest of creation and the rest of God's people to do the same. He says, I don't see it. My eyes are failing. I don't see my rescuer. But even though I don't see it, I know who God has been, and I have eternal perspective on what he's promised to do. And so I'm going to trust that he's doing something. I'm going to trust that that hand of rescue is going to come for my good and for his glory. The lifeguard never found me. I, I, I'm obviously surprised I didn't drown. I'm still here. I've been a ghost all along. Um, the lifeguard never found me. But you know who did? Another elementary schooler. I was going under, and I kept looking for that lifeguard. And I thought to myself, I might drown. I might die right now. It was one of the scariest moments of my life. And then out of nowhere, certainly not up from where I was looking for it, a little hand, a little further in the shallow end than I was, grabbed me, didn't even pull me out of the water, pulled me to a place where I could just get my footing. And I could breathe. And I couldn't believe this little person like me, not much bigger than me, saved me. And they said, are you okay? And I was like, uh, <laughs> I think I just peed in the wave pool, but yeah, I'm okay. Thank you. And I went on, but I, I almost died that day. And I can tell you that rescue came when I wasn't expecting it. It came from a place I certainly wasn't expecting it. But isn't that exactly what Jesus did? No one expected a manger. No one expected a baby. No one expected a servant. But in his perfect time, in his perfect way, he proved to be who he was. And he proved that he would do what he said he would do. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you today. I know your eyes might be failing. I know you might not see how he's working right now. But what we know to be true and what David knew, God is good. He is loving, and he is compassionate, and he will rescue us in his perfect time. So even when you don't see it, trust like David did. Amen. Praise and know our God is moving. Amen. Father God, what do we say to you, Lord? What do we say in the tension of absolutely hating the suffering and the place that we are in, if we're honest with our human selves. But knowing who you are, what do we do with that tension, God, while we wait for you? All we can do is appeal to your steadfast love and to your mercy, God. And so this morning, that is our prayer. That in the places where our eyes have failed, you would open them and we would see yourself. You would open them and we would see the proof of the God who is steadfast in his love and is merciful like a mother to her child. Lord, when we grow weary and our throats feel parched from crying out and we feel unheard, move in our midst if only you can. And as we wait for the sure proof of your salvation, God, give us strength to trust that even when we don't see it, you love us 
and you are working for our good.